0: This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome! You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc. Dr. Sanjay Lakya.
1: Several episodes ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing my partner, Dr. Matt McGirt, on the topic of adult spinal deformity. And it was a really good episode. I learned a lot personally and I received great feedback from the community about the episode. So today I'm really excited to follow up that episode with an interview with one of our new partners at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, Dr. Michael Boll. And Michael's going to take us through somewhat of a similar topic in that it's scoliosis and spinal deformity, but we're going to look at it through the lens more of a pediatric perspective. And I know there's a lot of parents who listen to our show and are going to be interested to hear what Dr. Boll has to say. Michael,
2: welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is a wonderful program you're putting on, and I'm real excited to have the opportunity to join you today. Michael
1: comes to us through a residency program at Barrow Neurological Institute, and he's fellowship trained in orthopedic spinal deformity through Virginia Mason Medical Center. And you did medical school at University of Michigan. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. I spent four years at the University of Michigan from 2009 to 13.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how you slipped through the recruiting process for our group, given that we do have several docs who are from Ohio. But <laughs> I think it's to our benefit. And I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit to the people who are listening and, and the local Charlotte community as well. A little background. I think you've got a pretty unique background with your military service, but I want to let you articulate kind of how you came into the field of medicine and and neurosurgery and what your military background kind of meant to you in your development.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I graduated from high school in the year 2000, and I never had any ideas at that time that I was going to end up in medicine. I ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps and left for my first day of boot camp early in the morning around 4 a.m. on September 11th of 2001. And just as I was swearing in and getting ready to go get on an airplane to go to Paris Island, the news reports of the terrorist attacks that day started showing up on the news. I knew from day one that my four-year enlistment was going to be, I was going to have more more life experiences than I had originally anticipated. <laughs> I spent my four years in boot camp and then later the school of infantry, I passed a screening to get into the... Marine reconnaissance program and spent my four years uh, from 2001 to 2005 as a reconnaissance Marine. And on one of my deployments to Iraq, we stopped in East Africa where we did a few humanitarian aid missions. And those missions felt tremendously meaningful to me. They impacted me a great deal and I think initiated a thought process and some insight that eventually eventually led me to decide that when my enlistment ended, I was going to go back to East Africa and, and, and volunteer as a nurse's aide in a health clinic to figure out whether or not a career or a, you know, some kind of job, I didn't know what, but something in healthcare was, whether or not that was right for me, whether it was something I wanted to do or not, because I, I suspected that I would enjoy it based on those humanitarian aid missions. So in 2005, my enlistment ended. I got honorably discharged and then immediately went, uh, traveled back over to East Africa and and spent several months working as a nurse's aide and and really loved it. I knew Swahili. I, I had learned Swahili while I was in the military and that that opened a lot of doors for me while I was there, including an opportunity to shadow a surgeon from New Zealand for a little while. And so It was while I was volunteering in in East Africa that I I was first introduced to the field of surgery. The first surgery I saw was was in Tanzania. It was a C-section child delivery. I was really captivated by it. Not only was I loving just working as a healthcare provider, but spending time with this surgeon really kind of brought into focus more clearly maybe what I wanted to do. So when I came home from East Africa, I Went to college to get my undergraduate degree, not thinking medical school necessarily, but ended up doing really well in school. Got into medical school at the University of Michigan, met my wife while I was in college and uh, went with her to nursing school in Rochester, New York. And then when she was finished with that, she came to the University of Michigan with me for medical school, where we started our family. And then it was in medical school that I found the field of neurosurgery. And again, was just really blown away by the tremendous positive impact that the neurosurgeons I was working with were able to have on their patients' lives. I really loved that and and was captivated by that. After medical school, I was accepted to the I matched into the neurosurgery residency program at the Barrow Neurological Institute, where I found the field of spinal deformity surgery and had the good fortune of working with several. Complex spine deformity surgeons who did training in both fields of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery, and they encouraged me to do the same during my residency. I sought out fellowship experiences with with orthopedic surgeons and and they were absolutely right. I, I think that as a spine surgeon who focuses primarily on spine deformities and complex spine conditions it's it's really important to be comfortable with both skill sets. and so Now I'm here. I feel tremendously lucky and honored to have this job here uh, where I'm focusing on adult and pediatric spine deformities and complex spine conditions. And it's been just absolutely fantastic so far. I'm convinced uh, that I've got the, the world's greatest partners. Not only are they phenomenal surgeons, but they're phenomenal people. And me and my family just feel so fortunate to be here and be part of this group. What was it about the
1: humanitarian work that struck a chord with you?
2: You know, I think to put it plainly, my job in the military was a I was a reconnaissance marine, which is a specialized infantry job, and I did two combat deployments both to Iraq. Those are fighting jobs, and those experiences are very, very starkly contrasted against what we were doing just several weeks after leaving, which was spending time at an orphanage, helping take care of children, delivering medical supplies to hospitals. And I think for me, the, the, the stark contrast between those experiences, as a young man, I was, I was you know, 19, 20 years old at the time. They, they really brought into focus, for me, the kind of impact I wanted to have on the people around me and what kind of job I wanted to have for the rest of my life moving forward. I started to look at healthcare as a potential career where I could positively impact people around me and try and give something back. And, you know, we were, it's not that I don't think we were doing good in Iraq. I think we certainly were. It was just through very different means. The humanitarian aid just struck a very different chord with me and made me feel like uh, what I was doing was, was tremendously meaningful and impactful, and I, I wanted to I wanted to find a job that enabled me to feel that way regularly.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's actually the word that comes to my mind is what an impactful life event
2: for you and how it's
1: shaped you. And we're all blessed to have you in our community. And it does sound like you've upgraded from the cold weather of Michigan and Rochester. You guys must love the Carolinas
2: right now. We do. You know, it's funny. When I I came home from my second deployment to Iraq, I told myself that, I never needed to live in the desert again, and so inevitably I I match into a seven year program in Phoenix, Arizona. Right, <laughs> that program was fantastic. It was it was really wonderful. But after seven more years in the desert, we're more than happy to to be in the uh, the Charlotte climate. No question. My kids are getting to see seasons for the first time. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's got to be great. All right, let's jump into the topic today. For those that
1: are uh, really interested in getting this information. One of the things I wanted to clear up as we get started is this idea of the terminology. Can you kind of clarify if there's a difference between the words scoliosis versus spinal deformity and kind of what those words mean?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a lot of these words get used interchangeably. The way I think about it, and I think the way it gets, it gets used most often, is that spinal deformity is very much an umbrella term that encompasses... Any condition where the shape of the spine is leading to some problem, you know, some functional problem, pain problem, some neurological problem. And there are a lot of different types of shape problems that a spine can have. And one type is scoliosis. When we talk about scoliosis, most of us are talking about an abnormal curve in the spine when viewed from the front. So, If you're looking at a normally shaped spine from the front, it typically looks straight up and down. But sometimes the spine will look curved. Either there will be a C-shaped curve or an S-shaped curve or even several S-shaped curves in the spine. And that is typically what we refer to as scoliosis. There are also problems with the shape of the spine when viewed from the side. And we have different terms for those. Kyphosis is too much forward angulation of the spine. Lordosis is backwards angulation of the spine. And the normal spine has lordosis and kyphosis in certain parts of it. But sometimes those curvatures, when seen from the side, are either excessive and lead to functional problems, or they're too little, and that leads to functional problems. And then when we're talking about pediatric spine deformity, There are also congenital problems, bones in the spine that aren't supposed to be there, bones in the spine that don't fully form, and those can lead to misshapen spines as well, which are broadly defined as spine deformities, and and they themselves can then lead to scoliosis or exaggerated kyphosis or hypokyphosis, any number of different problems with the shape of the spine. So, generally speaking, I think spine deformity is is really the umbrella term that that refers to any problem with the spine's shape. And then scoliosis is what we, we use the term we use to talk about the shape of the spine when viewed directly from the front or from the back.
1: In the pediatric population, why are we concerned about scoliosis in general? So, what are some of the things or problems that can develop? If we're not observant of the kid's posture as they develop, because you know, I know the school districts will check it, and I see a lot of patients where they say, "Yes, my daughter was told she has scoliosis when she was really young." Just in general, why is this relevant? What are the, some of the things you're looking out for as a physician as it relates to pediatric scoliosis?
2: Yeah, so there are really three. Three major factors that we consider, and these are also revealing of of why it's important to monitor this. The first is, is there a curve present? And if so, how severe is it? It's not unusual for people to have small curves. And how big the curve is, and we measure that in angles. So if a normal spine is zero degrees, that means it's, it's perfectly straight. Many people will have 10 degree, 15 degree curves. And curves that are that small typically do not cause a problem. Obviously, a very severe curve is very uh, different. You know, a 90-degree curve is visibly deforming. Anybody walking on the street would notice that kind of spine deformity, spine curve. And so the the severity of the curve is something that matters, not only for visual aesthetics, but also because in children, we know that once you reach a certain severity of curvature, that curve is much more likely to progress and get worse into adulthood. And that's actually the second important point is whether or not a curve, a scoliotic curve is getting worse over time or whether or not it's stable. Curves that are stable, meaning they don't change, they stay the same same degrees over time, are a lot less worrisome than curves that get worse and worse and worse with time curves that are progressive we typically keep a much closer eye on and in certain types of scoliosis the most common type of pediatric scoliosis which would be idiopathic scoliosis type that school districts screen for and that teenagers typically find out they have when teenagers have a scoliotic curve that is getting worse with time and they have a lot of growing left to do will typically put them in braces to try and control the growth of that curve. Because once it reaches a certain severity, we know that the curve is much more likely to continue getting worse into adulthood, which then typically requires surgical treatment so that it doesn't become a debilitating and or visibly deforming spine problem. And then the third issue is whether or not the spine deformity is causing any symptoms. Most often, idiopathic scoliosis in teenagers is not symptomatic, but sometimes it is. And especially progressive curves that continue getting worse into adulthood, those can certainly become symptomatic. And there are a large number of other spine deformities that children can get that, that are certainly symptomatic. And so how severe a curve is, if the curve is getting worse over time, and if the curve is causing symptoms, whether those symptoms are pain, visible deformity, or neurological symptoms, you know, difficulty with walking, difficulty with bowel or bladder function, nerve pain, those types of things, those are all symptoms that we consider when trying to decide how best to treat any given scoliosis. And the goal of treatment is always to keep a curve from getting worse, keep it as small as possible, keep it from getting worse and keep it from becoming symptomatic through the most minimally invasive means possible. And so things like bracing and physical therapy and non-surgical methods to try and control curves are always the first, second, and third choice for treating these conditions. With surgery being there and being a good choice, but always being the the last choice for only the most problematic curves.
1: Okay, let me unpack that a little bit. You just went through quite a bit of stuff there. So let's talk about it from like a case. Okay, so let's say, let's say a mom brings in her daughter, let's say 13 or 14 year old daughter, they've noticed a curve and she's having a little bit of back pain and you get some initial x-rays. Here's the questions that I get that I just wanna to present to you and get your thoughts on. Number one, Parents want to know do braces work? Number two, how often do I need to check her curve? Number three, when is this going to stop getting worse? Does it correlate with adolescence, puberty, hormonal changes? So these are the things that I think are on people's minds that I'd love to get your opinion on.
2: One of the most important factors in all of this is how much growing a patient has left to do. We can make an an estimation of that based on some some simple history. Are they growing actively? How tall are the parents? Simple questions like that. We can also look at growth plates on x-rays. If a patient has all their growth plates are closed, then we know they've reached what we call skeletal maturity, which means their, their skeleton, their bones have stopped growing. And there are a number of ways to measure how open or closed growth plates are to determine how much growing somebody has left to do. So that's one major factor is, are somebody's growth plates still open? Because if they are, scoliotic curves tend to get the worst during periods of active growth. And so it's important to know that. The next thing that I would typically talk about with the parents is how severe is the curve? We know from a lot of studies um, going back decades that scoliotic curves that are anywhere from 10 to 20, 25 degrees at the time of skeletal maturity finish is growing and they have a curve that's 10 to 25 degrees. those curves almost never become a problem later into adulthood. Curves that are r- that 50 degrees or more at the time of skeletal maturity, those have a very much higher risk of becoming a problem later into adulthood. And then curves that are between roughly 20, 25 degrees and 50 degrees, that's the gray zone. And so if a 13-year-old patient who still has a lot of growing left to do comes in with a 30-degree curve, we have an opportunity at that point to try and control that curve during that patient's growth and keep her from reaching this 45 to 55-degree range where we know that she's much more likely to have problems further into adulthood with a progressively worsening and progressively more and more symptomatic curve. And so typically what we do for those patients is bracing. And some of the best data that we have in the entire field of spine surgery is in support of bracing for adolescent scoliosis. Very high quality data, level one data has shown that bracing works. Not only does bracing work, but the more you wear a brace, the more it works. And so the goal with bracing is to stabilize a curve, keep it from getting worse through a child's period of active growth, of skeletal growth. We know with as much certainty as we know anything in medicine, we know that braces work. Curves that are in that 20 to 50 degree range in kids who are still growing That's where braces are really their most useful. And again, the goal is to get them through their growth curve, to get them to skeletal maturity with a curve that's less than roughly 50 degrees. Perfect.
1: So that that really clears up a big question that I get about the braces. One question I also really pops into my mind here is, does earlier intervention Help? Like the earlier you can identify the issue and get bracing started, does that lead to better outcomes?
2: It certainly does. Most curves, by the time we see them, are usually beyond that 20 degree range. But if you can find a curve earlier when it's smaller and start treating it earlier, you have a much, much better chance of getting that child through their growth with a smaller curve. So time definitely does matter.
1: So what are we talking about here in terms of the brace? Someone comes into you with, let's say, a twenty-degree curve. How often and how long do they have to wear that brace
2: for? Braces are not fun. I certainly understand not wanting to wear a brace. The data is pretty clear, though, that braces work. They work better the more they're worn. In most of the studies, including the most powered studies there was a direct correlation with the number of hours a day that the brace was worn and the probability of that patient avoiding the need for surgery for treatment of their scoliosis. So as close as you can get to 24 hours a day, you want to wear the brace. I know that that's difficult to do. Not everybody can do that. Most people will try and shoot for 16 hours a day, taking it off to sleep. The bracing plan is really something that gets actively worked on and managed with both your spine surgeon as well as an orthotist, the person who is going to be making the custom braces for you and for your child or for your patient. How frequently a patient needs a brace changed, how frequently they need to have it monitored really depends on whether or not their curve is progressing while they're in the brace. So initially, you know, a rapidly progressive curve, you might check every three to six months. But if it seems like it's stable in the brace, then you may start to space that out to every six to 12 months. And then the braces are are custom made based on where the patient's curve in their spine is. You know, the, the goal of the brace is to create contact between the brace and the skin at the apex of the curve, which is uncomfortable and teaches the patient to use their muscles to pull their curve away from the brace and therefore straighten the spine out. Once a patient grows out of the brace, that focal point of contact with the skin may move. And so the brace may need to be, they may need a new brace at that time. But the way braces work is by creating discomfort when the patient is allowing their spine to curve over to one side. And that discomfort encourages the patient to use their muscles to pull their spine back into a more straight alignment. That's why for many patients, when they first start wearing a brace, the brace feels exhausting to them because they're using their muscles in a way that they are not used to. And at the end of the day, they're just, they're just exhausted. But after some time and 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 getting used to the brace, they build up those muscles and get used to it, which is why the braces work, which is why they're better able to keep their spine straight and avoid the curve from just getting worse and worse. Thank you for that. That's a great
1: explanation of the role of bracing and just understanding about the timing of it and what you're looking out for. But you are a neurosurgeon and I want to get to that side of this uh, equation. So break down for us, what are the indications in the pediatric population for potential surgery to try and address the curvature uh, that's developing?
2: So the reasons why we will recommend and and go ahead with surgery for scoliosis, I'll come back to those, those three major considerations. Curves that are greater than 50 degrees, we know from, from good historical data, are very likely to continue to be a problem and even get worse into adulthood, even after they've finished growing. And so we typically recommend surgery for curves that are severe, you know, greater than 50 degrees. In kids who are still growing, if they have a rapidly progressive curve that is continuing to get worse despite bracing, Oftentimes, we will try and do smaller, more focused surgeries to try and get the curve to slow down without impeding the child's growth. A lot of pediatric scoliosis surgery has to do with avoiding surgery as long as possible to allow a child to grow and develop as much as they can. Oftentimes, once we stabilize a curve with surgery, we risk the spine fusing at those levels, which doesn't permit more growth. And in very young kids, that can, that can be problematic if, if, for example, we're treating their thoracic spine and their thoracic spine is unable to grow, their lungs and heart and things like that may not develop entirely. And so we want to avoid that at all costs. But if a curve just keeps getting worse and worse, despite all of our best attempts, sometimes we need to try and do smaller surgeries to get the curve to stop getting worse while still trying to permit growth in the patient. And so sometimes we'll see patients who have just a few levels untreated um, along their spine, or they'll have what's called tethering done from the side through the chest, for example. Those are typically temporizing surgical procedures done to try and slow down or halt the progression of a curve until that child stops growing. And then they're typically converted into a, a larger scoliosis correction at that time.
1: What's a typical rehab period look like? I'm sure it's variable depending on how aggressive you have to be with the surgery, but is this something that takes kids out of school for an entire year or a few months or what's, what's the recovery time?
2: It very much depends on the, on the type of surgery, you're right. But if we, if we just consider kind of the average teenager with the average scoliosis, I'd say that you should expect anywhere from two to five days in the hospital after surgery. And then probably about six weeks of feeling, feeling like you just had surgery. The first week is certainly the roughest. I and mean, by the sixth week, people are starting to feel a lot better but for those first six weeks, people are still actively recovering from surgery. Usually between six and 12 weeks, people are starting to get eager to get back to all their regular activities. And so typically around eight to 12 weeks, we will start physical therapy, post-operative physical therapy to start rebuilding and restretching the muscles around the spine that are now in their new position after surgery. And once physical therapy is done, people are typically feeling very good again, feeling like themselves, and resuming all their normal activities. And so that that whole process that I just went through typically takes about three months. It doesn't necessarily mean that if if you have the surgery over winter break, for example, that you need to be out of school for three months. But it's safe to say that you you should at least give yourself six, if not a full 12, Weeks of time off from your regular activities.
1: That's a great way to describe it, and and really just be transparent about it. That these surgeries aren't easy. And no,
2: these are these are big surgeries for sure.
1: Yeah, but you know what's very exciting about it is you have the opportunity to affect an individual's life and give, give that person the rest of their life, kind of a second opportunity. And that's that's a little bit different than. With some of the adult uh, interventions and adult degenerative care that we do, that makes the pediatric work that you are doing so exciting, at least from my perspective.
2: Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. It is very, very different from adults. There's no question. And in large part, it's because we're actively trying to prevent problems that we know are very likely to happen in the future. We know that if, if things come to surgery, and we try very hard to keep them from that, but if they do, surgery works very well. And so that's what I typically will remind people of, is that of course we want to do everything we can to avoid getting to the point where we need surgery, but also keep in mind that surgery is a good option and that it works. The nice thing about all of these conditions is that there are treatment options for them and there are non-surgical treatment options. And if those don't work or if things are moving quicker than we're comfortable with, then there are surgical treatment options. And for the most part, surgery in in recent years, recent decades even, has gotten tremendously better and safer than it ever was in the past. As time goes on, this is certainly one of those fields where we continue to get better at, at, at what we're doing. Certainly today, much more so than just 20 years ago even, surgical outcomes are, are much better. And we, we know a lot more about how to do these and how to make them successful.
1: That's great. I think I'll leave it there on a positive note. Before I let you go, though, I definitely want to pick your, your brain. I mean, I've, I'm talking here to a Marine, a dedicated neurosurgeon, a family man. What are gonna be your health hacks that are gonna be in your upcoming book and memoir? I wanna, I wanna preview right now what is your routine that keeps you healthy, uh, keeps your mind clear and focused?
2: I have always used running as uh, as my as my way to relax. You know, I I have been running sometimes competitively, but but in in recent years, really just for the relaxation and mental benefit. I get a lot of benefit from it, and I I just I just love doing it, and I plan to do it for as long as I can. One of the things that I I continue to learn as as time goes on and as my kids get older is for me, it's important to remember to have fun. (laughs) It's important to remember that although making strong goals and and being driven are very important, it's also very important to enjoy your day, do the things that uh, make you happy. Don't forget to have fun along the way because what else are we doing all this for if not to enjoy our time, right? Absolutely. I couldn't say it better
1: myself, but folks right there, that just illustrates the difference between a neurosurgeon and a physiatrist. Michael wants to run to relax. I'll take a weekend at the Grove Park in spa myself (laughs) (laughs) and come out the other side feeling much better. So there you go. There you go.
2: (laughs) We'll go for a run first, then go to the spa. That's, that's a good day.
1: (laughs) All right, my friend, I appreciate your time. This is a Really great uh, interview for me personally, just to get to know more about you, understand your approach to how you deal with these problems. I'm sure that the families that are going to listen to this episode are going to get a tremendous amount of value from it. And I look forward to hearing, seeing, reading great things about your career as you develop uh, in the Charlotte area. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much.
2: I, I really enjoyed it. and Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.